Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. Over the centuries, a lot has been said about Rome, La Città Eterna, the Eternal City. Even if you've never been, you can picture it. The history that palpitates through the city streets, the possibility that adventure really is simply waiting around every corner that Vespa's whisk past, the romance that mingles in the night air with a scent of heady smoke different from any other in the world, the cultural leisure that allows you to sip a cappuccino while in the shadow of beautifully unparalleled basilicas and other architectural giants, that indescribable it that makes Italy as a whole the real-life dream that it is. Anna Akhmatova once said, quote, Italy is a dream that keeps returning for the rest of your life. For me and many others, I know that to be true. For some, though, it's a nightmare that they're presented with instead, and it's one that they can't escape. This week, the story I'm telling you takes place not just in Italy or Rome, but in the Vatican city-state, a country within a country, and one with power unlike any other in the world. It's the story of a disappearance, one that initially might have seemed unremarkable. But as the story unfolded, it became clear there were secrets being kept, dangerous forces to be reckoned with, and they all reached the highest and holiest levels of power within the smallest country in the world. They say that all roads lead to Rome. In today's case, though, all of the roads regarding the disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi lead to the Vatican. And if you ask me, those roads are stained with blood. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. story takes place in the heart of Rome during a period of time in Italian history known as the years of lead. This was decidedly not the romantic idolized version of Italy I just described to you. No, this was a time in Italy comprised of treachery, bloodshed, and secrets worth dying or murdering for. Starting in the late 60s, political terrorism had coursed throughout the country, led by years of social, economic, and governmental instability. Between 1945 and 1994, it was said governments lasted on average only 11 months. There was constant forming, reforming, power plays, and secret liaisons made, usually in the effort to keep the neo-fascist and Soviet-linked communist parties out of dominant power. Within the turmoil of recognized politics, though, rose the prevalence of invisible networks and strategies of tension to turn the tides in certain favors. During these years, there were organizations like the Red Brigade, a political terrorist group who murdered former Prime Minister Aldo Mori. Organized crime began to dominate entire regions, the Mafia to the south and the Drangheti to the north, for instance, and corruption as a whole swept through the country. Hell, the Pope himself, John Paul II, even suffered an assassination attempt. Yes, the Pope was, in fact, a political figure, given his status as the holder of legislative, judicial, and executive power over the smallest sovereign state. It was on May 13, 1981, that Turkish national Mehmet Ali Agha approached JP2 as he entered St. Peter's Square and promptly unloaded four bullets into the pontiff, critically wounding him. Agaka was apprehended almost immediately, and the assassination attempt left the country wondering what significance the attempt had on a nation already standing on precarious social, economic, and political legs. At the same time, Italy witnessed the unveiling of Propaganda Due, an illegal shadow government that originally was a Masonic lodge, but got kicked out of the overarching organization because these fratinieri or Black Friars, as they called themselves, and their, quote, traditions of free thinking were so batshit wild, the OG Masonic Lodges didn't want to associate with them. With the publication of a previously secret list, these members of P2, as they were affectionately called, 
were revealed to be individuals at the height of Italian power. They included prominent journalists, cabinet members, the last Italian king's son, and even Silvio Bungabunga Berlusconi, the future infamous prime minister. There was another name on that list, though, one that might not be so readily recognized. Roberto Calvi, a man known as God's banker, counted himself among this rogue Freemasonry offshoots rank. Roberto Calvi was the chairman of the Banco Ambrosiano, a decidedly Catholic bank that was founded in 1896 with lofty goals of, quote, serving moral organizations, pious works, and religious bodies set up for charitable aims. The largest stakeholder in Banco Ambrosiano was l'Instituto per le Opere di Religione. Translated, that's the Institute for the Works of Religion. Translated even more, the Institute for the Works of Religion was actually the fancy name for the Vatican's bank. This Banco del Vaticano was the largest stakeholder in the Banco Ambrosiano and afforded Calvi a great deal of access to not only the Banco Ambrosiano's money, but also the Banco del Vaticano's money, which was overseen by their chairman, one Archbishop Paul Marcinkus. According to the New York Times, at the time all of this was happening, many considered Marcinkus's handling of the Vatican Bank to be, quote, freewheeling and extremely secretive. Marcinkus, it should also be noted, was an American from Chicago, the former chief of Papal Security, and also coincidentally oversaw Banco Ambrosiano's overseas operations, which were located in the Bahamas, a known tax haven. <sighs> the tangled, highly fucking questionable webs that religious organizations weave with financial institutions. It never ceases to amaze me. It was through Calvo's connections with Banco de Vaticano that it is alleged he was able to do several things from his position as chairman. They included, he exported billion, several billion lira out of the country through illegal currency transactions, laundered mafia heroin trade money, secured loans that were actually unsecured because of the bank's inability to back that thing up, inflated prices of Ambrosiano shares to the benefit of you know, him and the other board members, provided funding for Latin American dictatorships, particularly the Somoza reign in Nicaragua. And he even provided funds for various political parties in Italy, much like the problematic ones I just mentioned. All of this illegality caught up with him in 1978 with the publication of a massively damning report by the Banca d'Italia, the Bank of Italy, that uncovered a multitude of financial sins committed by Banco Ambrosiano. Calvi was arrested in 81, but he was released on an appeal and allowed to still keep his position as the Ambrosiano chairman. Just one year later, in the summer of 1982, the predictions of the Banca d'Italia report started to come true. It was discovered that between the 750 million to 1.5 billion US dollars was suddenly missing from the Banco Ambrosiano's vaults. The bank was on the verge of collapse with such astronomical debt. And much like a sinner, Calvi confessed his sins to his priest. And because of who he was, Calvi's priest was actually the Pope himself. On June 5th, 1982, he wrote a letter to Pope John Paul II, stating that if the Banco Ambrosiano collapsed, quote, such an event would provoke a catastrophe of unimaginable portions in which the church will suffer the gravest damage. This letter, though, wasn't just a confession. It later became proof, proof that all the illegality that Banco Ambrosiano was cloaked in wasn't a secret, at least not to the highest ranking affiliates of this banking network and the Vatican. On June 10th, Calvi was last seen in his Roman apartment after receiving the news of a Banca d'Italia inquiry into $1.4 billion worth of loans Ambrosiano-controlled banks had made to questionable Latin American businesses. The bell, as they say, was tolling. With a fake name and passport, he fled to Venice and then hired a private flight to London with a roundabout route through Zurich to throw authorities off his trail. On June 15th, his private secretary, Graziella Coracher, 
penned a letter renouncing Calvi and Banco Ambrosiano for the ruin he had brought down on the bank's employees solely for their being associated with him. She placed the letter on her desk and then jumped out of the window from her fifth floor office at the Ambrosiano headquarters into the Milanese streets below. On June 16th, the still missing Calvi was officially stripped of his chairman title as the bank began to crumble. The bell tolled louder. Around 7.30 a.m. though, on June 18th, the body of Roberto Calvi was found, swinging above London's River Thames. His clothing had been stuffed with bricks and on his person he carried $15,000 in three different currencies. He was found hung by the neck with a noose tied to the underside of the scaffolding of Blackfriars Bridge. Fratinieri, even in death. Within weeks of Calvi's death and the investigation into it, the Ambrosiano Empire had crumbled in a magnificent self-implosion to the tune of 400 million in defaulted loans, a cliff dive in stock shares that sent the Milan Stock Exchange into a panic, Ambrosiano depositors transforming into Ambrosiano defectors, and the Vatican itself was being drawn into the whole decidedly secular and decidedly criminal affair. Banco Ambrosiano's criminal empire enterprise wasn't built in a day, but it certainly burned in one. The rise and fall of a Roman financial empire, the attempted assassination of the Holy See, guerrilla political groups running rampant through the Italian subway system, a rogue subset of Freemasonry, and the ever-growing threat of the various organized crime families, suffice to say, the early 80s in Rome were something else. You might be asking yourselves, what the hell all this has to do with today's case? Friends, this is simply the backdrop of our story. We're only just getting started. In the words of Sophia from Golden Girls, picture it, Vatican City, 1983. June 1983 to be exact, almost a full year since the discovery of Roberto Calvi's suicide, and there are heavy air quotes around that one, and a little over two years since the discovery of Propaganda Due, the assassination attempt of Pope John Paul II, and the move of organized crime from underworld to Earthside. And on June 22nd, 1983, 15-year-old Vatican City resident Emanuela Orlandi was running late to her flute lesson. It's important to point out the distinction between an Italian citizen and citizen of Vatican City, the Vaticanese as it were and actually is. For those who aren't aware, Vatican City is its own country, a country just 0.6 miles long and half a mile wide. Vatican City is contained within 0.17 square miles, and to give you a better picture for those who might need visual examples, it's only one-eighth the size of Central Park. It was in 1929, through the Lateran Treaty, that Vatican City became independent of Italy as a whole. Today, it's considered an enclave, quote, portion of territory within or surrounded by a larger territory whose inhabitants are culturally or ethnically distinct. It is an independent city-state and the smallest sovereign state in the world. Because, oh yes, the Pope is considered a sovereign. Vatican City is governed by the Holy See, which is the central governing body of the entire church, which means it's under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome, which is just another name for the Pope. There are a lot of convoluted names that all basically relate back to the same thing when it comes to Catholicism. And if convoluted isn't the perfect adjective to describe the church, I don't know what is. All this to say, the Pope governs over Vatican City through an absolute elective monarchy, which gives him, like I said earlier, all legislative, judicial, and executive powers. Despite all of these powers, Vatican City is considered a neutral state, an independent observer of the UN, and doesn't even have any armed forces. What they do have are the Swiss Guards, whose official capacities oversee the Pope and the Vaticanese, and the Corpo della Gendarmeria, the police force of Vatican City. And despite Vatican City's small size, I do want to point out that it has one of the highest crime rates in the world, due most likely, and because of, the millions of tourists who flood its streets daily. 
Something interesting too about crime in Vatican City. When crimes are committed in Vatican City, Italy does in fact retain the power to punish the perpetrators themselves in spite of the immunity afforded Vatican City under the Lateran Treaty. Like I said, just something interesting to consider. The Vaticanese themselves number 825, according to reports from 2019. 372 Vaticanese live elsewhere in the world, usually diplomats representing the Holy See or cardinals who live outside the city in Rome itself. Unsurprisingly, the gender ratio trends towards more male citizens due to the presence of so many religious living within the city walls. The remaining 453 residents are either clergy members or lay people who, quote, serve the state and their own families. Think Swiss guards or those who work within the papal household. This was the case for Emanuela Orlandi and her own family. Emanuela was the fourth child out of five, born to Ercole and Maria Orlandi. She was Vaticanese through and through. She and her siblings, brother Pietro and sisters Natalina, Federica, and Maria Cristina, were truly born and raised within the city's walls. The Orlandi father, Ercole, was the reason for the children's unique citizenship. He was one of lay people who worked within the papal household. He worked as a clerk within the office that arranged the Pope's schedule, specifically in regards to various private audiences. Speaking of their childhood, Pietro recalled once that, quote, the Vatican gardens were available to us as if it was our own backyard. We felt we were in the safest place in the world. The safest place in the world, which is probably why no one ever could have predicted what would happen to one of their own just beyond the confines of the Vatican city walls. It was summer in the Eternal City, and despite school having ended a few weeks prior, rising junior Emanuela was still regularly trekking over to Scuola di Musica Tommaso Ludovico da Vittoria at 5 p.m. for flute lessons three times a week, even over summer break. It also didn't hurt that the boy she had a secret crush on, Alberto Laurenti, was a guitar student who also attended his own lessons frequently. Though she attended Liceo Scientifico, a high school geared more towards the sciences, Emanuela had an innate love for music. She played both the piano and the flute, was in the choir at Sant'Anna da Palafinieri, and was clear that music was her passion. For a girl described as beautiful, kind, and full of joy, being attracted to the arts didn't seem too much of a stretch. Tommaso Ludovico was connected to the Pontifical Institute of Sacred Music, and the conservatory was just across the street from the Piazza Navona. So Emanuela had a routine down to get to her weekly lessons. She would usually just take the bus from the family home on Via Sant'Egidio, but for whatever reason, on this late June day, after she had spent the afternoon picking up the ingredients for pizza her mother planned to make that night, Emanuela and her older brother Pietro got into a fight. Accounts vary about the basis of the fight. Some say that Emanuela asked Pietro to ride the bus with her to her lesson, and others say that she asked him to give her a ride, on which I can only assume was a Vespa. I have to imagine that over the years, the cause of the fight really did get lost in translation about whether it was taking the bus with Pietro or catching a ride on his Vespa that caused the two to bicker. In my mind, logic seems to suggest that she was asking Pietro for the ride via his Vespa but he refused, saying that he had plans with friends. According to Pietro, remembering that afternoon of the sibling arguing is, quote, a very painful memory. She insisted I take her and we rowed over it. This quote is the one that backs up my belief that she was asking for a ride from him as opposed to asking him to join her on the bus. Pietro also says about that afternoon though, that when it became clear Emanuela wasn't going to get her way, quote, she left slamming the door. I never thought it would be the last time I saw her. Resigned to taking the bus, Emanuela followed the route that she was so familiar she could have followed it in her sleep. She grabbed her usual bus near the family's apartment inside Vatican City and began the mile-long loop to where her lessons took place in Piazza di Santa Polnare, a church now run by the secretive and conservative Opus Dei organization over the Tiber River via the Ponte Sant'Angelo with views of the Castel Sant'Angelo, that historical fortress used by popes now turned museum, Emanuela then stepped off the bus when it arrived at Piazza Navona 
and began walking through the popular square over to the Palazzo Madame, where the Italian Senate meets. It was here, though, her familiar routine was disrupted. According to a constable and a traffic officer who witnessed the exchange, Emanuela was waved down by a man in a dark green BMW. By all accounts, she had never seen or met the man before, but he had a business proposition for her. As later related to her sister Federica over the phone, this man told Emanuela he'd like to hire her to pass out flyers advertising Avon products during a fashion show that was taking place in a few days' time on Saturday. And the two hours of her time doing this would come out to a nice little sum of 375 lira for her trouble, or $250 in American money. Though the two officers witnessed the exchange, the Senate video surveillance cameras did not. They allegedly weren't working that day. From what she told her sister, Emanuela apparently asked the man to give her some time to ask her parents if this was all right. Federica herself had once sold Avon products, but Emanuela still wanted to run it by them. He told her he would meet her after her lesson, and she carried on towards Sant'Apollinare, only a few hundred feet away. During the two-hour lesson, it's been reported that she was distracted throughout it. Her sisters later told investigators Emanuela had been put off, slightly weirded out by the BMW Avon man. Even though she arrived slightly late because of the argument with Pietro and the Avon man stopping her, she asked her instructor if she could leave a little early. At 6.50, she left her lesson and called her sister, Federica. It was during this call that she told her what had happened with the Avon man, and when Federica told her that their parents weren't home at the moment so she couldn't even ask their permission about working the fashion show, instead, Federica told her younger sister to forget about meeting the man and to just come home. This would be the last contact Emanuela would have with anyone in her family. It's here again that accounts differ. Some friends from the conservatory say that they saw Emanuela chatting with a red-haired woman on her usual bus back to Vatican City. Others say that she spoke again of the Avon opportunity with a girlfriend while waiting for the bus, and this girlfriend then left her in the company of another girl. Still others, though, say that they saw Emanuela not getting onto the bus, but getting into a large, dark-colored BMW, which Ever account is the truth, the story has one consistent thread of truth. As she left her lesson at Sant'Apollinare, seemingly headed for the safety of home inside Vatican City, she never made it there. And it was the last time anyone would see Emanuela. I imagine it was when she never showed up to meet her sister at 7.30 that the Orlandis realized something was wrong. We don't know much about those initial hours of the night that Emanuela vanished into. Though the Orlandis had approached the police, they told the family to, to cool their heels. Maybe Emanuela had simply gone off with some friends. The Orlandis, however, weren't satisfied with that answer. The next afternoon, around 3 p.m., her parents called over to the conservatory and spoke with the program director. Did any of their daughter's friends know where she was? Any idea at all? Did any of them have any information to share? When none of Emanuela's friends could shed any light about what had happened that afternoon, the police finally changed their minds. On June 24th, just one day after she was last seen, Emanuela was declared a missing person. However, there was one piece of information that surfaced, something that cast Emanuela's disappearance in a darker, more sinister light straight from the beginning. Just 40 days before Emanuela herself was last seen near St. Apollinare, another girl had been abducted. On May 7th, 15-year-old Mirella Grigori was heading out the front door of the family home when her mother stopped her to ask where she was going. She simply said that she had a date with a former classmate, but didn't share the name of who she was meeting. The Grigoris thought nothing of it at the time. At 15, of course their daughter wasn't going to share all of the details of what was going on in her life. She had even made what they thought was a joke in the previous days. She told her parents that she had found a way to come up with the money to buy an apartment that they had been considering purchasing. Again, though Mirella didn't expand or explain, her parents thought nothing of it until she didn't come home. 
As news of Emanuela's disappearance began making the rounds throughout Vatican City, one of her friends, Rafaela Gugo, came forward with another unnerving incident. Months before, she had complained to her father of a strange occurrence. She felt she was being followed. That in itself is weird enough, but it gets stranger still when you learn that Rafaela's father, Angela Gugo, was the personal butler for the Pope. Speaking to the police, Rafaela shared that following the assassination attempt on the Pope's life, her father had taken her aside to give her a warning. There were whispers winding their way through the halls of San Pietro, and they spoke of a kidnapping plot. As the daughter of the Pope's butler, Rafaela would have been a prime target for those wishing to exploit the Pope through one of his closest attendants. Shortly after Rafaela learned of the potential plot, she realized she was being followed. On six different occasions, Rafaela spotted the same man trailing her as she made her way to school via the bus. After she told her father about the strange man, he immediately transferred Rafaela to a school within the Vatican City and refused to let her leave the city limits or to go anywhere alone. Despite taking these precautions for his own family, Antonio Google didn't think to tell the Orlandis, even though he knew Ercole as well as being a fellow Vatican employee, and the two families lived in the same apartment complex. So, when considering it, had the kidnappers just simply switched targets once Rafaela was placed out of their grasp? It seemed possible, especially when other friends of Emanuela did start to come forward to police in the days after her disappearance to share their own startling pieces of information. Though Rafaela was no longer being followed, Emanuela was. And the last time she had noticed it was three days before she vanished. Her friends, who have not been publicly identified, shared with police that on at least two different occasions, Emanuela realized that she was being followed. On June 19th, the instance was so bold and brazen, it was almost laughable. Emanuela and some friends were walking back into Vatican City when a car stopped by the girls that was so close they could hear the passenger and driver speaking. With the window rolled down, the passenger pointed directly at Emanuela and said to the driver, that's her. The Orlandis were shocked at the revelations. Emanuela hadn't said anything to them about the incident on June 19th, and they'd had no idea about Rafaela Google's own fears of being followed. Though no one could say for certain what had been transpiring inside the walls of Vatican City, it was clear that something was afoot. On June 24th, three Roman newspapers, El Messaggerio, El Tempo, and Paese Sera, published information about Emanuela's disappearance and included the Orlandi's home phone number for anyone with information to utilize. And it was then that the phone call started. At 6 p.m. on Saturday, June 25th, the day of the fashion show Emanuela had been offered the Avon job at, the Orlandis received a call from a young man who claimed his name was Pierluigi and that he was 16 years old. According to this Pierluigi, his girlfriend had seen Emanuela, or at least a girl matching her description, in the popular Campo dei Fiori selling cosmetics and going by the name of Barbara. He spoke of the fact that this girl had a flute with her, which was a detail that hadn't been released to the public at the time. But despite holding it and having it, she refused to play it in the square because she was too embarrassed about the thick glasses that she had to wear in order to read music. This quirk was well known to the Orlandi family, but how did this mysterious caller know about it? Pierluigi claimed that the girl spoke to him and his girlfriend, telling them that she had just gotten a haircut to disguise herself because she was running away from home. The call was baffling. Here was a stranger providing unreported and private details, but in the context of his call, none of it made sense. Why would Emanuela be running away? Three days later on June 28th, another man called. This time, it was a man going by the name of Mario, and he claimed he owned a bar in the Ponte Vittorio, which was equidistant between Vatican City and Emanuela's flute lesson in Sant Apollinare. He said a girl, once again fitting Emanuela's description, had become a new customer of his bar, and she had confided in him, saying her name was Barbara, and she was, quote, a fugitive from home. Mario claimed that Barbara told him a story of how she wanted some time away from her family, that she just wanted some space, but 
that she had planned to return back to them before her sister's wedding in the fall, since she was planning to play the flute at the ceremony. Again, the family was dumbfounded. The story made next to no sense, but still contained crucial details that hadn't been made public. Her sister's September wedding, for one, and the fact that Emanuela had promised that she would play the flute for the occasion. There's just no explanation for how someone would know that unless they had heard it from Emanuela herself. But how to explain the rest of the baffling details? Why would Emanuela need to leave home? What would have caused her to need space? The Orlandi family home was a happy and healthy one, and there was no discernible explanation for why Emanuela would have chosen to run away. By June 30th, more phone calls came in, but these were mostly just cruel prank calls or calls with little helpful information. 3,000 flyers had been plastered around the city by then, showcasing Emanuela's picture and the family's plea for help. The police were equally perplexed by the phone calls, but that said, the investigators and the family agreed on one thing. According to Pietro, quote, it was clear the Pierluigi and Mario phone calls were talking about Emanuela. The family now believes the callers were trying to stall the police from searching for her and the police themselves through the prolific prosecutor, Giancarlo Capaldi, agreed. Out of the dozens of other calls, they were certain that the Pierluigi and Mario calls were placed by two men who were, quote, certainly involved in the abduction because they were also certain of another thing. Emanuela hadn't run away from home. She had been kidnapped and the investigation was about to get a publicity boost from the Pope himself. Despite holding the distinction as the greatest church in all of Christendom, Sundays at St. Peter's Basilica don't usually see the Pope actually holding mass there. Certainly, other priests will say Mass, and the Pope will preside over Mass on particular holy days, but you're not likely to see His Holiness rocking up to the pulpit on just any old Sunday. What he does do on Sundays, though, is hold his weekly Angelus. Every Sunday at noon, the Pope will address the crowd at St. Peter's Square, lead them in a prayer afterwards, and thus concludes the Angelus. And on Sunday... July 3rd, 1983, Pope John Paul II had something to say to the crowd before him in Piazza San Pietro. After leaving the packed square in prayer, JP2 made a surprising announcement. He was acknowledging not only that Emanuela Orlandi had disappeared, but he announced that she had been kidnapped. It was the first time the theory of a kidnapping in the case had been made public. Addressing both the crowd and the alleged kidnappers, the Pope said, quote, I am close to the Orlandi family. He then appealed to the, quote, sense of humanity of those responsible for this matter and called on the kidnappers to make, quote, a speedy return of the missing Vatican citizen. It was clear someone had been listening to the Angelus because two days later, yet another call came into the Orlandi home. This time, there was a deal to be made and it involved the Pope himself. Dubbed L'Americano by investigators because of his clear American accent, the man shared details of his own with the family that seemed to confirm to police what they had already begun suspecting. He claimed to know that the family had already spoken with his associates, Pierluigi and Mario, suggesting that Emanuela's kidnapping had, in fact, been orchestrated by a group. In this first call, he told the family their daughter was being held by a Turkish terrorist group, the Grey Wolves, the same group that Ali Agga belonged to, the man who had attempted to kill the Pope back in 81. L'Americano told the Orlandis Emanuela would be freed as soon as Agga was. Over the next days and weeks, more phone calls from L'Americano would be placed, and each call was equal parts terrifying and mystifying with the things that he shared. On July 6th, the day after his first call, L'Americano reached out to ANSA, the leading news organization in Italy. He told them of the kidnapping and that they were demanding the release of Ali Agga from his lifetime prison sentence in exchange for Emanuela. The press were told that the group was also demanding the Pope's cooperation to facilitate the deal and that he had 20 days to coordinate the exchange. The story of Emanuela's disappearance had already captivated the city, but now 
With the news of a ransom deal involving the man who had tried to assassinate the Pope, the press were hooked. L'Americano wasn't shy about the frequency of his calls to the Alandis either. In the same week as his first call, he made another one to the family where he played a recording of what sounded like Emanuela herself. The girl's voice was heard saying, I am Emanuela Orlandi and I attend Liceo Scientifico. Emanuela did in fact attend one of the local scientific high schools, but police were slow to acknowledge any veracity behind this call. This could have been a recording from who knew how long ago, and it certainly wasn't considered proof of life. The voice sounded like Emanuela, but there was no guarantee that it was her. Just hours after he played the alleged recording of Emanuela to the family, Lamedicano was on the phone with the Vatican itself, telling them once again that the Pope had 20 days to swap his would-be assassin with Emanuela. In fact, Lamedicano made calls so frequently to the Vatican switchboard, he eventually demanded a direct line to the Holy See's Secretary of State, Cardinal Agostini Casaroli. By July 18th, the line had been installed for his use. But whatever Cardinal Casaroli discussed with Lamedicano, well, we don't know. Not even the Orlandis know. That information has never been made public. Though he had the ear of the Vatican, the kidnapper, or at least the chatty Cathy one among what might have been a group of kidnappers, still made calls to the Orlandis, the press, the police, and even some of Emanuela's friends. On July 8th, a call was made to one of her classmates, and the same proposition was relayed to them. Emanuela was in the group's clutches, and they demanded the release of Ali Agka within 20 days to assure her safety. This time, however, it wasn't L'Americano making the demand. It's been reported that this caller had a Middle Eastern accent as opposed to the American one. It's unclear who this friend was or why they were contacted by the kidnapper, but I have to wonder, was it Raffaella Google? And was she called because of her father's close connection to the Pope? By mid-July, the kidnapper was leading police and the press on a twisted treasure hunt throughout the city. In a bid to prove that they really did have Emanuela, L'Americano alerted the press. A bag containing photocopies of her Tommaso Ludovico music school ID, a receipt from her purse, and a note allegedly written by Emanuela herself could be found outside of Palazzo Montecitorio, where the Italian parliament met. July 25th, 20 days after the first phone call from the alleged kidnappers was made, that day came and went. No exchange was made. More traces of Emanuela were found throughout Rome by the kidnappers' direction as the weeks dragged on. An innocuous garbage bin contained a bag with photocopies of sheet music from a composer that Emanuela was known to have been studying. Yet another photocopy of her ID was found at a chapel inside of the Leonardo da Vinci International Airport. And there were even letters postmarked as coming in from Frankfurt and signed by a group calling themselves the Turkish Anti-Christian Liberation Front, claiming they were the ones who had Emanuela. And they didn't just have Emanuela, but they claimed that they were also holding Mirella Grigori captive as well. Both girls would only be released so long as Agco was. Perhaps the most haunting call of all was the one placed to the Orlandis, the one where they were met with the sounds of a woman being tortured. The police later tried to assuage their fears, saying the recording was actually from a porn film. But still, I wouldn't blame the Orlandis if they believed it was their daughter. With few things certain and even fewer leads about where Emanuela was, L'Americano was their only hope of seeing their daughter again. But after 16 phone calls, all placed from public phone booths throughout the city, by October 27, 1983, L'Americano had gone silent. No more mysterious phone calls, no more clues hidden throughout the city, no more hints of where Emanuela might be. On Christmas Eve, just two days after the six-month anniversary of Emanuela's disappearance, Pope John Paul II himself arrived at the Orlandi family house. According to Pietro, he spoke of Emanuela's disappearance with them, stating that it had ties to, quote, international terrorism. By the end of the visit, he had also granted Pietro a job at the Banco del Vaticano, a surprising event that would later be viewed with both irony and suspicion. Three days after his visit to the Orlandi home, the Pope met with Ali Agka himself, 
his attempted murder in prison. Their conversation has never been made public. Agka, though, he didn't remain silent when it came to the Orlandi kidnapping. In February 1985, he participated in a prison interview with Italy's RAI television station, and he proved he was as incapable of sticking to a story as he was of being a fucking assassin. Originally, Agka had claimed that Emanuela was kidnapped by Bulgarian operatives of the Grey Wolves, the terrorist group that he was aligned with, and that they had all been hired by the KGB to blackmail and take down the Pope because of his Polish heritage and his support of the Polish labor movement, Solidarity. Some believe that the Pope's support of Solidarity had played a role in destabilizing the control communism had on the region, and Agka claimed Emanuela was kidnapped in a bid to blackmail the Pope while also serving Soviet interests. However, during this 85 interview, Agka's tune switched. He told the nation that instead of ties to a KGB plot, Emanuela was alive, safe and sound, living life in a cloistered convent. He claimed that he knew this not through any direct knowledge of his own, but merely because of some, quote, logical deductions he had made. Just going to let that one sit there. By July of that same year, Agka was then claiming that the Vatican had been behind Emanuela's disappearance. When it comes to Ali Agka, investigators learned not to hold him in high regard, or really in any regard. Giancarlo Capaldo, one of the lead investigators into the case, along with Pietro Orlandi himself, they've long considered Agka to be a bit of a, not even a bit, he was the biggest red herring that they had in regard to Emanuela's disappearance. Investigators have since debunked the idea of the KGB being involved and thus debunked Agka's theory themselves. After 14 years, that was about all investigators could confidently admit to though. In July 1997, after more than a decade of investigating every and any lead that came their way, investigators were forced to close Emanuela's case. In the official report, Prosecutor Giovanni Malerpa spoke at length about the complexity of the case, as well as the numerous and, quote, obvious red herrings that had been planted in their path. Two factors that greatly frustrated and hindered the search for Emanuela. At the end of it, though, there were only two things investigators could say that they were sure of. One, that the KGB masterminding of the plot Aga had tried to convince them of was a lie. And two, that the Vatican hadn't been nearly as cooperative with investigators as they should have been, even as one of their own remained missing. And in the years since the case has declared closed in 97, there have been a number of theories why the Vatican seemed to turn the other cheek when it came to Emanuela Orlandi. The disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi is a case that is rife with theories, and the majority of them have only started to come to light in recent years. And almost all of the theories arrive squarely back at the Vatican, one way or another. Eight years after the case was labeled officially closed, interest was renewed in the case in 2005 by way of an episode of Chi l'ha visto. Think of it like the Italian version of Dateline or America's Most Wanted. During the program, an anonymous call came in and its implications unnerved the whole damn country. While on the air, the caller stated, quote, on the matter of Emanuela Orlandi, to find a solution to the case, Go see who is buried in the crypt at Santa Polinari Basilica and about the favor that Renatino did for Cardinal Paletti at the time. Not only was Santa Polinari significant to the case because it was the area in which Emanuela had last been seen, but it was significant in its own right. It was a minor basilica and named such in 1984, which gave it an elevated status among other churches and, as such, Burials at the church were usually reserved for senior clergy members, high-ranking Vatican officials, not just anyone off the street. But even more than that, who could possibly have been buried there that was related to Emanuela's disappearance? The former vicar general of Rome, the Cardinal Paletti mentioned in the Chi Vista call, he had been dead since 97, so he couldn't be asked. The message made especially no sense when faced with the fact that no burials had taken place at Santa Polinare in over a hundred years, or so it seemed. 
For seven years following this call, the Vatican refused to entertain it. And furthermore, they refused investigators access into the crypt that was now under the jurisdiction of Opus Dei, who had been granted it in 1990. While investigators fought with the Vatican to gain access to the Satipalinati grounds, whispers about other cardinals, other situations, and other outcomes about just what had happened to Emanuela wound their way throughout the Vatican, Rome, and the country at large. In 2008, an investigative journalist and Orlandi expert, Pino Nicotri, published a book about the case with a damning and damn near salacious quote from an anonymous niece of a Cardinal Silvio Odi, a former Vatican diplomat and one who had long since been dead. This niece claimed that her uncle had confided in her that at the time of her disappearance, Emanuela had been in a relationship with another cardinal, one he apparently didn't identify by name to his niece. In the same book, Nicotri shared that a different, though still anonymous, Vatican source told him that on the night she disappeared, Emanuela had been in a, quote, friendly meeting that ended in an unfriendly manner and resulted in her death. Abuse of power, particularly of a sexual nature, is no stranger to the social circles of the religious. But to hear such claims being made about those in power at the Vatican, the headquarters of Christendom, was both shocking and terrifying. And the hints, as they say, kept coming. By 2012, the Vatican was forced to play ball. The infamous Catholic exorcist, Reverend Gabriele Ormarth, claimed Emanuela had been a victim of a sex ring orchestrated by the Vatican police. Speaking to La Stampa, Emorth claimed that Corpo della Gendarmeria acted as a recruiter for the girls, and those officers were then kidnapped them, forcing them to participate in, quote, parties organized by this police force. Emorth claimed that it wasn't just police involved in the sex ring or Emanuela's specific abduction. Members of a foreign embassy that he refused to name had also been present on the night of Emanuela's kidnapping and her murder. Somehow, things still got worse for the Vatican PR machine. The year before, in 2011, the crime underworld of Rome shot to the top of the Emanuela Orlandi investigation. A member of the Banda della Mangliana organization, Antonio Mancini, had turned informant, and he had quite the story to tell. According to Mancini, Emanuela's disappearance was a mob-orchestrated kidnapping designed to blackmail the Vatican into paying the mob. Mancini claims that during the time of Banco Ambrosiano, the Banda della Magliana gang had invested around 24 million U.S. dollars into the organization, and that 24 million was then lent to the Vatican. And by lent, I mean laundered through. When Ambrosiano went under, however, the Vatican was on the hook, and they eventually paid out the creditors to the tune of $244 million. Except, when it came time to pay Banda della Magliana, they didn't get all of their money back. Paints a quite distinct picture for you, doesn't it? The Vatican using mafia money and then owing the mafia money. Somehow, though, Enrico de Petis, the leader of the Banda della Magliana, struck a deal with the Vatican that ended the dramatics of paying back the entire 24 million that the gang had invested into Ambrosiano. And part of that deal, according to Mancini, was a burial at Santa Polinare. Was that the favor referenced to in the Chilavisto call? Was a mafia leader doing a cardinal a favor by calling their extortion efforts off? If the Vatican struck the deal, shouldn't Emanuela have been returned? Who needed a burial at Santa Polinare? And where was Emanuela? According to De Pettis' girlfriend at the time, Sabrina Minardi, she was already dead by the time the deal was struck. Sabrina Minardi is a polarizing figure in an already over-the-top-as-hell cast of characters. Investigators consider her by equal parts full of it and truthful. According to the Toronto Star, quote, she described to investigators seeing Emanuela held by the Patisi's gang for several months. She also claimed she saw Emanuela's lifeless body in a sack before it was dumped in a cement mixer on a construction site in Torva Vianica, a seaside town south of Rome. Minardi says Emanuela was held in a grotto below an apartment building in Rome's affluent Monteverde neighborhood. 
Later, investigators discovered that that apartment above the grotto belonged to DePettis' gang. Sabrina also described three men, all members of the Banda de la Maliana gang, who followed Emanuela prior to her disappearance. When investigators included the pictures in a lineup presented to Emanuela's friends who were with her on June 19th, the day when a man pointed her out directly, all three girls pointed to the three men that Minardi had named. And perhaps most striking of all from Sabrina Minardi, this gangster's former girlfriend claims that the late Archbishop Paul Marcinkus was involved with the financial blackmail scheme of kidnapping Emanuela. Marcinkus, you know, the one who oversaw the Ambrosiano overseas operations while also heading up the Banco del Vaticano, was allegedly involved with the mafia plots to kidnap a Vatican employee's daughter in the name of extorting the Pope. Somehow, that's not even the strangest alleged link throughout this entire tale. And things only get stranger. I told you, Catholicism is nothing if not convoluted. By 2012, after seven years of wondering, a newspaper discovered, and subsequently leaked, who exactly was buried in the crypt reserved for cardinals and the most senior of Vatican officials. Renatino, as it turned out, was a nickname. The nickname of Enrico de Peris, the leader of Banda della Maliana, who was known as one of the most violent criminal organizers, and he had risen to the top of the crime world thanks to his penchant for extortion, murder, and kidnapping. What the hell would de Peris, a brutal gangster who had been shot dead on his Vespa in Campo de Fiori by rivals, what was he doing buried at Santa Polinare? He couldn't possibly be there. The call had to have been a hoax. On May 14th, though, the hoax was proven true. Upon gating entrance to the crypt, police found and exhumed De Pedis's body from his burial site. And after a year of testing the DNA of all the other skeletons in the crypt, it was determined that Emanuela was not among them. For another seven years, the Orlandis would wait for new information, new leads, new clues about where Emanuela could be. The next one arrived in the form of an anonymous letter in 2019, and it was calling on the help of angels. The family received a letter last summer with a picture of an angel carved out of stone located in the Pontifical Teutonic Cemetery, a cemetery on the Vatican grounds. Accompanying the picture was a message, quote, look where the angel is pointing. What the angel pointed at were the tombs of two German princesses who had been buried there in the 19th century. Had Emanuela been so close all along? Had she never even left her beloved Chita del Vaticano? Why would she have been buried there with two German princesses? On July 11, 2019, the exhumations took place and the discovery shocked everyone. Because not only was Emanuela not resting where the angel pointed, but neither were the two princesses. No one has any idea where the princesses or Emanuela might be. Emanuela was and is still missing. Pietro Orlandi claims that he doesn't know about the theory surrounding his sister's disappearance, a disappearance that has stretched into its 37th year this summer. However, he does have this to say, quote, the behavior of the Vatican over these 36 years has been one of secrecy and lack of collaboration and has made me think that there are leaders within the Vatican who know what happened. I believe Pope John Paul had to weigh the truth about Emanuela against the image of the church. And he made a choice. I believe he knows what happened from John Paul II to Ratzinger and Pope Francis, they all know what happened. He's not the only one who thinks so. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, quote, a source close to the prosecution of the Orlandi case is quoted as saying, quote, behind the sacred walls, someone is still alive and in possession of evidential fragments of the truth. 
let's start asking some of the hashtag questions that surround this disappearance. The questions that need to be asked in order to crack those sacred walls of secrecy. Question number one, was Roberto Calvi's death actually a suicide or was he killed for his role in the collapse of Banco Ambrosiano and the threat that that posed to the Vatican? If his death wasn't a suicide, who killed Roberto Calvi? And was it a propaganda due fratinieri who planted his body at the Blackfriars Bridge? Who benefited most from Calvi's death? What did Graziella Corriger, Calvi's personal secretary, know about the financial misconduct at Banco Ambrosiano? What role did Archbishop Marquinis play in the financial misconduct between Banco Ambrosiano and Banco del Vaticano? Regarding the letter that Calvi sent Pope John Paul II on June 5th, 1982, what did the Vatican truly know about the financial misconduct between Ambrosiano and its own bank? How widely known throughout the papal household was the illegal activity of Banco Ambrosiano? Would someone like, say, Ercole Orlandi have knowledge of the financial ruin on the horizon? Who was following Raffaello Google in the months before Emanuela disappeared and why? Was there truth to the kidnapping rumor that Antonio Google had told his daughter to watch out for? When her father made her transfer schools, did this deter any would-be kidnappers from taking Raffaella? Did the alleged kidnappers then turn their attention onto Emanuela since Raffaella was too risky a target? Why didn't Antonio Google tell the Orlandis about his worries or the rumor? Who was the classmate that Mirella Gregory was meeting on the night that she disappeared? What was the opportunity that she said that she discovered to make money off of? Was the person Mirella planned to meet that night the same person who ended up kidnapping her? Is there a connection between Mirella's disappearance and Emanuela's? Who were the men seen following Emanuela? Why were they following her? Why didn't she tell her parents about them? Who was the man in the BMW who stopped Emanuela on the way to her flute lessons? Were the Palazzo Madame surveillance cameras really not working that day? Was there once a tape from that day and it was later destroyed? Did Emanuela ever get on the bus back to Vatican City? If she did, who was the red-haired woman some say that she was seen talking to? If she didn't, where did she go or what did she do instead? How did the Pierre Luigi and Mario callers know such intimate details about Emanuela and her life? Were these two callers simply a diversion meant to distract police during the initial investigation? Who was L'Americano? Was Emanuela's disappearance ever related to securing the release of Aliaga? If not, why would anyone use that as a front? Was the voice on the tape that L'Americano played over the phone actually Emanuela? What did L'Americano discuss with the Pope's Secretary of State? How did the alleged kidnappers have so many photocopies of personal items belonging to Emanuela? Who was the person with the Middle Eastern accent that called Emanuela's friend? Why was this particular friend called? Was it Raffaello Google because of her family's connections to the Pope? Why did the kidnappers keep demanding for the exchange between Agka and Emanuela to happen in 20 days? When July 25th came and went, why didn't anything happen? Why did the Pope give Pietro Orlandi a job at Banco del Vaticano? Who placed the anonymous call to Chi Visto? Was Emanuela's kidnapping the result of the mob trying to extort the Vatican for the millions of dollars that they were owed? Was the Banda della Mariana hired to carry out Emanuela's kidnapping on behalf of somebody high up at the Vatican? And if so, who hired them? What was the favor that Enrico de Peris called into the Vicar General of Rome, Cardinal Poletti? Hell, what was the favor that he even did in the first place? Was de Peris actually settling the accounts between the Banda della Maliana and the Vatican with his call to Poletti? How does Poletti fit into Emanuela's disappearance? What was the real reason de Peris was able and allowed to be buried at Santa Polinare? And what connection is there between his burial there and the fact that it was the same place that Emanuela was last seen? 
Is there truth to journalist Pino Nicotri's claims that Cardinal Silvia Odi's niece told her Emanuela had a relationship with another cardinal? What about the claims from a Vatican source that Emanuela was killed after, quote, a friendly meeting went badly? What the hell does that even mean? What about the claims that exorcist Reverend Gabrielle Amorth made that the Corporal de la Agenda Media were running a sex ring and targeting young Vaticanese girls and that Emanuela was killed in one of those parties? Who were the foreign embassy diplomats that Amorth claimed were also in attendance at these parties? Was Archbishop Marquinez the link between the Banda de la Maliana and the Vatican when it came to the plot of kidnapping Emanuela as a means to extort the Vatican, like Sabrina Minardi claims? How truthful are Sabrina Minardi and Antonio Mancini? Who sent the anonymous letter to the Orlandis last summer telling them to look where the angel is pointing? What was the purpose of sending the letter? Who moved the two German princesses and why? Was Emanuela ever buried there? If so, who moved her when and why? If she was never there, what is the connection between the tomb of the two German princesses and Emanuela? Did the writer of the letter even know that nobody was in those tombs? Because the Vatican retains immunity for most criminal matters, who had the most to lose if the misdeeds of the Ambrosiano and Banco de Vaticano scandals came to light? Was the Vatican's immunity status being exploited by those who were involved with the financial scandals? Was the immunity status exploited by those with knowledge of or a hand in the kidnapping of Emanuela? Are the people involved with Emanuela's kidnapping still being protected by the Vatican? Or are they being protected even in death? What did Pope John Paul II truly know about Emanuela's kidnapping? What have the popes since JP2 known about it? Is the reason behind Emanuela's kidnapping a Vatican state secret? Did the Vatican allow one of their own to be kidnapped in order to protect the image of the Catholic Church? The very basis of Christendom is based on things that are passed down. Look at the Bible, for God's sakes. It's made up of whispered teachings that transcend generation through generation, that create systems and structures founded in the words someone else tells us. An entire origin story made up of events and happenings that intertwine and intersect to create a web so large and so vast that it's intimidating to even consider trying to parse out the truth. So too, as Emmanuel's own story becomes so twisted and knotted with seeds of truth rooted in rumors and lies and cover-ups. Is it too hard to believe that the Vatican would allow the mythologizing of the story of a girl who had to go missing in order to protect the secrets and status of the church and its image? This story is uniquely frustrating because the truth of it is so close within our grasp, and yet, Every time the hope of uncovering what really happened to Emanuela is just about realized, it vanishes as completely as Emanuela did on that June day 37 years ago. What happened to a 15-year-old girl who had nothing to do with the sins being committed in the holiest halls of Christendom? Was the tangling of the church and the criminal supposed to be untangled with her abduction? Has the story of Emanuela Orlandi, the true story, been passed down from pontiff to pontiff like a Bible story from hell? This is a mystery in the truest sense of the word. Emanuela is the only citizen of Vatican City to ever be kidnapped. Her disappearance is one overshadowed by Omerta, that time-honored mafia code of silence and non-cooperation with authorities. Ironic, then, that it seems to be the Vatican upholding such a practice and hiding behind its own blend of both mafia omerta and pontifical secrecy, while a family who lives within its walls prays for answers about what happened to their daughter and sister so many decades ago. Consider this. The Vatican is the only country in the world that can lock its own gates at night. For those of us on the outside, 
we're left only to wonder what secrets are locked away behind those same gates every night and what version of Emanuela's story will be passed down to the next generation. I just hope the time has come for that story to be the truth because Emanuela and the Orlandis deserve it. Thanks for listening to today's episode and a special thanks for indulging me in my Italian linguistics that I don't get to practice nearly enough these days. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to the newest member of the DAW Patreon crew, my charming German princess, Shannon Jarrett. In the words of Alana from Broad City, love you, bish. Thanks for supporting the work of the good ship DAW. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, all one word. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkashellpodcast at gmail.com. This month's calendar of exclusive Patreon content is sure to get everyone in the spooky fall mood, so come check it all out at patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again.